Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is your host, Andy, and we're back to talk with Symbiop Garden Shop. Now, these folks are a worker-owned, native plant-focused landscaping and gardening company that work extensively on trying to make restoration work approachable for non-gardeners and homeowners through classes and consultations. We chat a bit about how they came to be native plants on the West Coast, which, as you know, I don't know as well, and much, much more. So please take a listen. Let us know what you think. I just have to give a shout out to uh, Raymond. He's one of our crew leads. We were listening to your podcast the other day while we were on site and I came up that we were going to have a talk and he's like, can you please shout me out? So this is me shouting out Raymond. Thanks for all your work, buddy. You, you, you kick ass. Yeah. They want to make sure everyone knows. <laughs> Matt, thanks for coming on. Could you uh, please introduce yourself for our audience? My name is Matt Gravel and I work with uh, Symbiop Garden Shop and Landscaping. Awesome. Where are you guys located? Portland, Oregon. Awesome. So you guys are getting a lot of different plants than what I get to see. I know we were talking a few minutes before uh, we started recording and um, yeah, I was just like, I don't know any of the species you're talking about, uh, but but that's cool. It's like one of those things people don't realize how how wide even the continental United States is in terms of its diversity, even talking from like temperate climates where you would think we're both wet climates, not super hot, not super cold. We should have a lot in common, but we really don't. Yeah, I hundred percent. It's even crazy to like see the difference of diversity within like the Willamette Valley or within the stretch of our like eco region and like species that are only endemic to like certain parts of like the Juan de Fuca Strait or Vancouver Island or in like the Willamette Valley in Oregon. So as as I've dove deeper into like the native plant world and like installing native plant gardens, I've really been like shocked at the nuances and that that native plants don't just mean like a broad, like a broad area. It's like it can yeah. get really, really into the into the weeds for lack of a better term, I guess, about like <laughs> yeah, you know, about where things are from and like something that, you know, maybe a hundred miles north. And even like ecotones. Yeah. 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 And yeah. if you go like even from Portland, like if you go east whatever 60 to 100 miles you hit you hit the cascades and if you go over the cascades it just turns into desert and if you go west you get to the coast and like even the coastline like an hour and a half drive from portland has completely different species that like only grow there it's really fascinating so i i I could only imagine how different they are but i think i think a lot of the similarities is that they're like the prairies are like oak dominated kind of ecosystems or what what they, they used to be oak dominated ecosystems they're kind of different now grasslands and stuff like that yeah, here I'm like 10 miles from the Pine Barrens, so that's like its own unique ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But technically I'm not, but like there there's more overlaps than you would think from looking at like a, a map. And, and that comes with its own unique challenges of like what is native and what is not native and what restoration looks like. And that's where you guys do a lot of your work, right? Around this idea of like restorative habitat and trying to to make that accessible to people, right? Yeah, hundred percent. A lot of our work, at least in the landscaping field, is working in like urban environments, doing kind of like the kill your lawn kind of uh, approach to things, and really trying to connect people to like teaching them that landscapes can be managed in a you know in a more regenerative and more like environmental way, without like greenwashing things. 
so to speak. So yeah, a lot of our big focus, um, a lot of people come to us. There's a really great program in Portland called the Backyard Habitat Certification Program, and they do really amazing work. And it's like they, you can work with this organization that helps you get certified in different levels for backyard habitat certification. So a lot of people come to us because we're like a contractor who works with them. A lot of people come to us and they're like, I want to get this backyard habitat. And they come to us with their like their little pamphlet, the report from the consultation. And they're like, how can I implement this? Or I don't know what these weeds are. Or I don't know like all this stuff. So we get to work with people who just like want to create something more than just a lawn. It's really fun. And it's all about making it accessible and making it understandable and changing kind of like the 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 stigma behind like native plants and like how people view them because it's really shocking it's from like a horticultural sense people who are like maybe more horticulturally trained there's a lot of like kind of negative like connotations behind to like to like native plants they don't follow bloom sequences they look messy native gardens are like not kept blah 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 so it's kind of fun to like debunk these and work with people that actually end up having like really beautiful like gardens but they support like just so much more native habitat than a garden full of peonies and camellias so it's there's it's there's it's a lot more fun to work with yeah absolutely and one of the things i think in the ornamental side is like in terms of like shaded areas there's just not a lot and it blows me away how much is available when you get into native at least on the east coast it might be totally different where you are but like there's a ton of things that we can use as an understory flower as long as you're willing to do something native whereas if you go to lowe's it's like well do you want a, a bleeding heart which i guess technically is an ornamental of a native but yeah it, it's it, there's so much out there that we're not using and it just seems insane I I 100% agree. Um, Here, like in the Pacific Northwest, uh, especially, you know, Portland, um, rhododendrons are just like the premier like plant. Rhododendrons and camellias, you just see them everywhere. And in shade, that's kind of what you get. In full sun, south-facing wall, that's what you get. And boxwoods too. And like, I'm actually looking at this poster of like Northwest Woodland wildflowers and like things right now. And I just see photos of like tiger lilies, trilliums. Cornus canadensis, salmon berries, salal, wood sorrels, like columbines, like all these like really cool flowers that you can like grow in really shady spots, which naturally with like in urban environments happen a lot with like buildings or there's a lot of tree cover in Portland. So there's a lot of these like people think shade is like an undesirable like growing location, but there's actually so much diversity that you can fit in there. So it's, it's a lot of fun to approach those landscapes and be like, Oh yeah, we can get you more than just a rhododendron and like uh, whatever we can, we can make you a whole woodland garden that makes you feel like you're like in a wild space. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, the first, like they don't realize that they love spring ephemerals. And I don't know if they're Mm -hmm. as big of a deal there as they are here because we have such a long winter, Mm -hmm. but it's like people like plant daffodils and it's like, oh man, you don't even know what you're missing out on. Like there's so much cool stuff out there. Yeah. You don't have to have just these little, you know, tiny little yellow flowers that are in everyone else's yard. There's so much you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first signs of spring are just yeah. And I mean, the, out here we have camas is probably one of the best signs of like later spring. And it's just like per, like beautiful purple fields of camas everywhere. Like they're like part of like the Gary Elk ecosystem and stuff like that. And it's, it's fun to see those plants start being like adopted 
into like more urban environments because they're what dominated the landscape here. They were like an essential food source for indigenous people. So it's it's fun to like be able to bring those back and make people get excited about these things that just like these bulbs that just like pop up, flower, look pretty, and then go back and, and hide for the rest of the year. So <laughs> yeah, there's just so much, so much diversity out there that is just like untouched, like in horticulture sense that it's it's fun to bring them in into landscapes and like play around yeah i that that's awesome um so i know knowing our audience i'm gonna have to ask the question of what everyone is saying or thinking as they're listening to this is i want to do that how do i do that so can i ask how did you get into this and like how did you like not i mean i'm assuming you had some landscaping or like horticultural background but like, how, how does this kind of a business exist? Where does it come from? How do, how do you replicate it across the country and make every single person want to have native plants? Sure. No pressure at all. Yeah, no question. pressure at all. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start, there's a couple, um, I'm going to start with my story and then I'll start with like our cooperative story because I, I feel like, the, yeah, there's like two, two different sides. Yeah, and I, we haven't even talked about the cooperative part, which yeah. is why people will be excited too. Yeah. So that's, that's a whole nother thing, but I, I guess I'll start, start with my history so I, I grew up on Vancouver Island in Victoria, British Columbia. My family's actually from Duncan, heart of Vancouver Island. Gary Oak Ecosystems pretty much like run run that area. I grew up as like like skateboard punk kid, just wanted to like skateboard all day and, you know, drink beer and kind of do whatever with my friends. And I always needed like a, a job to like get by. So essentially I started like, I got a landscaping job with a friend. I basically started with her. Uh, just cutting grass and doing like general, you know, trim, blow, go stuff, uh, maintenance work. I did that for a couple of years and then she ended up giving me her business and I just kind of kept it going for like a year or two. And I kind of like fell off and didn't want to, I was just, I was just too young. I was like 21 or something and I didn't want to like run a business. Fast forward a couple of years, I ended up getting another job with a, a really good friend of mine and like a, a mentor, Kara Wooters. And she she ran an organic landscaping business, um, which was kind of interesting to me, shifting from like conventional landscape into like organic. And through that business, we ended up getting grants to get me trained to be like an organic master gardener. So I kind of started that way. And I went from conventional Trimmo Blogo, still doing Trimmo Blogo, but with like an organic kind of lens to it and learning about soil health and like how to manage things like that. And it kind of just like opened up this like kind of wormhole kind of thing. I was helping run her, like her crews, running landscape business for her, running maintenance crews, learning like horticulture, learning plants like that. But it it just kind of felt like a dead end and it didn't feel right once I started learning about like house, you know, like soils living and it's not just dirt um, or how like Roundup and like pesticides are bad for plants and stuff like that. I started getting like a bigger sense of like how connected we are. After that, I think it's a pretty common thing for people who get into like ecology, but maybe don't have like formal training. I, I kind of went down the permaculture wormhole, which is awesome. I learned a lot there, but what I kind of found out later in life is that everything that I was learning in permaculture was just like stuff that my ancestors kind of knew. I found out later that I was like, I'm, I'm Métis, I'm an indigenous, indigenous person, um, and I'm connected to my indig indigeneity that way. So it kind of just like became like this full circle that I was like, I feel like I'm learning something that I like that I know, or that's like different, but I kind of just kept diving down into the wormhole and just started like reading 
textbook after textbook. You could never get me to read a book ever, but I would just buy like straight up like college textbooks and just like go on vacation and read them. Hmm. And it, it just kind of went from like a permaculture design course to reading textbooks. And then I ended up in actually Belize for a little bit on a month long trip, trying to help my mom get some property going down there. But I ended up doing like some farm touring and then ended up working on a couple like agroforestry farms down there for, you know, a, a, a short while. And one of the farms was like a model farm to combat climate change that was funded by the Belize government. So I kind of just hung out in like these Mayan villages, like learning, like staying with like Mayan folks who like ran these farms and stuff. And like, I I just started learning like this really like connected way of like being with everything and just seeing how like people generally like have to live connected to their environments to survive, which is kind of like a shock coming from like North America. It's kind of like a, a, whoa, everything's not just like handed to you. So that kind of like started like fueling a bit more of that fire. And then when I came back from that trip, I started doing, I was working for another company at the time doing like ecological landscaping, which was if you go organic, now you're doing ecological work, <laughs> but we're still running gas machines doing trim, blow, go. I was working with them and uh, everyone that I worked with was actually uh, environmental science uh, majors at UVic. So they were all pretty like into the ecological stuff. And I started talking to the the owner at the time about maybe starting like a more permaculture based business, let's say, or more like regenerative based business um, by starting out doing like a, a, like a, doing like an urban nursery and like maybe offering landscape design, teaching and all that stuff. He was into it, but I think there just was some tension. So, and he encouraged me to find another job elsewhere. And I was kind of like, hey, you know what? I think this is my time to like do everything that I've been learning for the last couple of years and do it on my own. So I actually started a, an urban nursery in my friend's backyard. It was like about 2000 square feet. Um, I traded land use for garden care. So I like started converting their their property into like a, a food forest kind of vibe. And then I started growing like 70 different species of like, like beneficial or like permaculture plants, you could say, which I think looking back on it now is just all a sham and just kind of like, you know, it's a, it, what, it's a what, stepping stone for a lot of people. That's, that's the way to look at yeah, it. Yeah. A, a great stepping stone, but like what people call like a permaculture plant and does all these great ecological things. There's like 10 native plants that can do it better in your backyard. <laughs> so you shouldn't be following these textbooks, permaculture lists plant come free if you want, but whatever. So I started doing all this, like growing, <laughs> like finding a lot of rare, like uh, perennial vegetables, you know, which was really fun. Like, you know, finding like weird leafy greens to eat um, different, like rare fruiting plants. And I just started like propagating plants like crazy and then getting contracts to do install installation work. And I en ended up actually getting a, a contract with this restaurant in town called the village that owned three different locations but they hired me to start this thing called the grow show and it was basically introducing food forests to all of their properties so that the kitchen could come back and harvest all of the fruit in the backyard and bring it to the restaurant and bring it right to the table so i ended up installing three different sites basically for the three different restaurants and that was kind of like my main contract for like a couple of years while i was doing all of this and then things were going good and i kind of was getting a good basis for everything business was good. I got nominated for like entrepreneur of the year 
I guess, ecopreneur of the year, I should say it was like kind of for like this green business award and stuff. So I was making pretty good like traction in, in the things that I was doing in Victoria. But then I fell in love with my now husband who lived in Portland. I was coming through Portland on a skateboard trip or something. And I, I met him and we kind of like instantly madly fell in love. And this whole whirlwind of romance happened and it turned my life upside down. I ended up deciding that I was going to make the move to Portland shortly after we met just so we could have like a more, like a real relationship. So I sold all my business. I sold my greenhouse to some friends of mine who lived up Island and Duncan, um, sold them all my plants, my greenhouse. I said goodbye to the village and said, Hey, I got to go move on to something else. I reached out to some people here, some permaculture people here who told me that they were going to, they would have opportunities for me if I came up here. So I was kind of like, well, I got to go. So I ended up moving up here, going through the immigration process. As happens with people, things, plans fall through. I didn't end up working with said permaculture people. That was kind of empty promises, but it got me here. And I ended up volunteering with this organization. And my dear friend, Kirk, was like the, one of the executive directors for this organization. And he, I kind of just started volunteering there and he told me that there was this new cooperative in town that was looking to hire like a landscape designer, but a very specific one. And he showed me the job posting. I saw it and I was like, well, this is what I do for a living. This is what I've been doing the last five years. Um, I think it's a pretty good fit. So I ended up interviewing for the position with Symbiop, the cooperative we're at now. And it had just been founded. Um, there was like three three worker owners, part of the the co-op. And I came on as like a, a, a new design a designer to start running projects and crews. And, you know, we started transforming what our landscaping business was. And we kind of grew like astro- astronomically. The th- three founders and I, we had, I think there was like maybe two or three, four other employees at the time, you know, just kind of doing small garden work. We kind of just kept doing that bit of work for like two, I think it was like not even... God, it's we've grown so fast. I'm sorry. The time is weird. So I worked, I got, I got hired by them. I went through like the whole worker owner, like governance process with, with this company, which we can dive into a little bit later. Cause I think it's like, it's important, but, um, and I became the, the very first like worker owner, um, to be brought on outside of the three original founding founders, um, not make Lotus and JT. They brought us in, we started doing this and we started working and working and, in our meetings, we do like weekly meetings, like coordination meetings and all that stuff. It's it's a big part of our like our company culture is like having all members of our our team like involved in like decision and process making. In a lot of our talks and stuff like that, you know, we we'd start dreaming big, um, which I think is important for any small business and nursery. And we're gonna have this garden store. It'd be really cool to see our business grow there. We're gonna be in like every major city across the United States. Like we had like you know dreaming about all these things. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. 
You can also support the show through that website, poorpearls.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Shortly after, like, you know, like a year and a half into like running landscaping, figuring out how to run a more like efficient landscaping business. Cause I used to go from one other working, everyone who pretty much worked in landscaping before that worked with us, either worked for themselves before or worked for like small businesses. But we were starting to get to the point where we had like eight to 10 people working for us. So it just becomes like a whole different like management process. Yeah. So I had to unlearn a lot of things from like the last five years of like working for myself, how to like manage business. We all did learn how to communicate with people, learn how to like do all these things. But we followed the pretty strict bylaws of our like our governance for like symbiop of how to like work, I guess, together. So like we always have these like bylaws to fall back on. It's pretty, it was pretty easy for me at least to like transition into that, knowing that there was like some sort of like bylaws that you can like follow and be like, this is are we in the direction of where our company wants to go? So in Ju- June 2021, I believe, one of the the organic farm supply stores in Portland, it was like an, a staple. It, it was called Naomi's Organic Farm Supply. It was queer owned. It supplied like some plants, but mostly just like if you were an urban farmer or homesteader, that's the store you would go to. Naomi decided to shut down her business and it, it, it was around for like 10 years and it kind of like left a hole in Portland and people were like really sad about it. The pandemic, I think got to them and some, like, I think they, I think they walked away from their business, like admirably, it didn't go out of business, but this opportunity arose and we started talking to them about maybe buying the business, or maybe we could just take over the business. So in July, it it moved really fast. It was like two months of this. And then July 21st, we ended up like signing a lease for our garden shop. And we went straight into like project mode, renovating like a 10,000 square foot business that used to host goats and stuff inside of it. So it smelled really bad. <laughs> it was more, it had this really a gross drop ceiling in it. And there was more mouse carcass and more mouse poop than I've ever seen in my entire life in this building. So anyways, we started, it was this ugly, stark white building and we started um, renoing it and I kind of like grabbed the reins on a lot of the design and a lot of like the, the, like the layout of, of the shop, JT and Kalila, who happened to be another worker owner at the time, or is still is a worker owner. They handled a lot of the backend business stuff, account setting up finance stuff. And we kind of all just like all of the worker owners together, we kind of just like worked on like curating the shop, finding accounts, finding native plant growers. And our, our, our goal with the shop was to be Portland's largest native plant retailer and also offer like ecological, like homesteading supplies, ecological gift shops, like from local makers, and then also have like food forest and like permaculture plants that like we deem beneficial into in our environment that don't cause harm. So no, no autumn olive. Autumn olive is invasive here. It's not. No. So autumn olive is fine. And I plant, I plant a lot of it. That's so weird. Yeah. I don't think I could ever get over that. Yeah. I could live out there for 25 years. I would not get over that. A lot of people actually, they get, they get really, when I put autumn olive in designs, they get very, uh, 
scared. Like they're like, I, I read it's invasive. I said, yeah, it's invasive in the Eastern United States. It, it won't go anywhere here. They're in, in Victoria, just to kind of backtrack. I used to be a, a, the steward of Spring Ridge Commons, which is the oldest public post-colonial uh, food forest. Like it's located downtown Victoria and it's about, I think it's like 23 years old now. Um, it was started by, I think Jeff Johnson, somebody's going to correct me on this many years ago. Um, but I was one of the stewards of it for many years where I would just tend it. And the autumn olives there were 18, 20 years old. And I've never once in my life saw an autumn olive sprout up anywhere in the city of Victoria. <laughs> um, so That's wild. it's yeah. Autumn olive and Gumi are, we, we use them a lot here. Um, and there's actually a really great variety that started in Victoria that was found in like a driveway of like this old Portuguese family's house called Portuguese superhero that I'm actually like a huge fan of. And it gets really big and it produces a lot of food and get fruits pretty late. And surprisingly, like in Victoria, I saw a lot of like native, like birds using it, but not too, too much, but you know, things like Robins and stuff really enjoyed it. It, it was a busy bush in the, in the winter time at least. So, but yeah, autumn olive's not so bad here. <laughs> yeah. That, I don't know. I guess it's all about context, right? And yeah. It's uh, it's still my brain. I'm like Pavlov, Pavlov's dog. Like <laughs> I hear autumn olive and I'm like, no, don't yeah. do it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important like takeaway from like a lot of this work and a lot of way like people talk about stuff. It's like all about context and there's not like, you know, even back to like when I was talking about like permaculture plants and what, what, what that like means to me now is like, you need to like tread carefully with these things because like, yeah, sure. They're a dynamic accumulator, but you could probably find a different native plant that functions better and won't become a nuisance and support many more species than whatever this plant from China is that someone, some dude from Australia decided was like the plant to plant everywhere, you know? So it's, it's interesting. So, and like what works in one climate doesn't work in other climates and there's just different strategies for everything. I think, I think that got us to where I was with the store. Like we, we started doing it. Um, we ended up opening October 1st, 2021, October 1st, 2021 is when we opened selfishly, not really selfishly, but it just happened to coincide with my birthday. So that was kind of like a, a, a present to me. But yeah, so we ended up opening up the shop and we ended up continuing to grow from there. I think in the first like six or so months, we saw like our our like our landscaping business continue to grow and our landscaping business is still like growing astronomically. Like to this day, it, it's still, there's no shortage of work for us in our landscaping business. And the the shop being a couple of years younger is just like a little bit behind. And if anyone knows how business is like a business in its infancy is like usually takes a couple of years to like get going. So the, the landscaping business is like, and it's like adolescence or like it's growing. So it's starting to just like be able to take care of itself. Whereas the garden shop still needs a little bit of handholding, but it has the bigger brother to help it out with all of that. Like we saw our business grow from like eight employees. And I think now the shop's been open for a year and a year and like four months where I think our cooperative together is just when we opened the shop, we had four worker owners five worker owners when we opened the shop and probably 10, 12 employees. And now we're at just about 30 employees, I think, and eight worker owners. I think we just voted another worker owner today. So I think nine worker owners we have in the cooperative. 
so it's been really like it's been a really astounding growth to say like the least our business has been yeah, I mean that's that's awesome. I think for a lot of people, they hear the term worker owner and they know they like it, but they don't know what it really means. So could you yeah. define that for me? Yeah. Some days I don't know what it means, but <laughs> um, basically so the idea, god, JT's so much better at explaining this stuff than than I am, but I'm I'm going to do my best. So the idea of a worker owner, they are someone who works for our company, Symbiop but they have invested stake in the ownership of the company. So for example, in our in our cooperative, everyone we bring on or hire, it is our goal to make them like an owner of our of the cooperative. The goal with that is to make a more equitable workplace, let's say, and have more people invested in the day-to-day activities and operations of the business. So everyone can feel like their voice is heard and it's not just like a top-down run business like we see happening all over Everywhere. the world. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and you hear a lot of like people who aren't treated the way that they should be and all that stuff. With worker ownership, with the co-op, when we hire people, we have a pretty like, we lay it out pretty straight up that our goal is for everyone to become a worker owner. And we we kind of make sure that people like want that for themselves to come in. For worker ownership, we have like criteria that you have to meet before you get voted in. This means you have to work with our cooperative. It's you have to work with us for at least one year. This is to kind of like vet personal relationships and interpersonal stuff, like see that you get along with people, see that you align with our mission for people and planet. Make sure that you're good at like problem solving, you you can handle conflict, you understand consensus, decision-making. You know, it's just kind of like your 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 personal vetting time. And then you have to hit, hit uh, 2,000 hours worked, which typically is like a full-time job. So these those two criteria have to be met before you can get voted in. Once they're met, it's brought to the worker owners, everyone, and we vote on whether or not you can come in. To this point, we have not not voted someone in because typically after that after that year long process, people are here who want to be here. So we we've kind of it's really fascinating to see how it works that way. And all the worker owners at that point are typically, because we're, we've been moving so quickly, they're all in like positions that require more responsibility. But I think the most important thing to think of as a worker owner is it doesn't like necessarily mean that you have to take on more responsibility. It means that you have the ability to vote for what's best for your business and put the people in the positions to handle the decisions in order for the business to succeed. So that's something that like I've had to like come to terms with a lot with like what ownership of a cooperative means versus like ownership of like my own business because we share the weight of like how this business operates so we need to like trust in other worker owners like judgment to make make those decisions and that's basically what you're like voting on when you're bringing in um new people so so at that point, anyone, like anyone in our team from the least experienced workers, like let's say least experienced landscaper workers to the most experienced people to anyone in between, they can all come in and provide their view or their like their their lens on how the outcome of our business should be while we're governed by our system of bylaws. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? I feel like I'm rambling a bit, but I mean, it's complicated because yeah. you're you're an owner, and then there's suddenly new owners, and you each have as much at stake 
in a way that seems counterintuitive because you would think we're so traditionally trained to think of ownership as being like this inequitable thing based on seniority or, you know, shares. And mm -hmm. Usually shares are correlated with seniority. So it gets a little messy in that sense. But ultimately, what it comes down to is that there's a number of people that all share the same vision. And it's genuine because there's this skin in the game for everyone involved versus, uh, you know, the we're all in it together kind of thing that you get out when you go work at Walmart or whatever, the, you the know, false family. Yeah. Your, your work family. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you've managed to take a passion for native plants and ecological restoration and also take a, a very political stance with how the business is set up, which I think is really intimidating for a lot of people. I mean, I, I know we have like our own discord and, you know, there's 1200 people or whatever on it right now. And the amount of people that are like, I wish I could quit my job to do this kind of stuff, but the pay is too low. And uh, that, that is very valid, 100% valid, but doesn't mean you have to go work for somebody. It means you need to well, I don't want to sound like too entrepreneurial, but like there's opportunity if that is truly what you want. You just have to think about it from a different a different lens or a different perspective. Yeah, I've started to realize that like how I view business and how business operates is so much different than what I what I thought what I thought it was before when I started my first business. You know, I, when I started my first business, I always knew I wanted to have a business that took care of me, and like when I had employees, it it took care of whatever employees it had and it did good work, but I didn't know what that looked like. And I'm starting to realize as I fell into the cooperative, that is essentially what I wanted it to look like is something that can be, that it, it doesn't have to be what we're, we're kind of told what business can be. So it's really taught me a lot and it's taught me, yeah, it's just fun to do things differently, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come without challenges. Yeah. The one thing that you absolutely need in like a cooperative, uh, like a cooperative setting is communication. And something that I really value about our cooperative is we have people who are like specialized in like different avenues of things. Like for example, me and our other lead designer, Nutmeg, we're like the plant people. We have Lotus who happens to be our landscape project coordinator, but they also have like a degree in communication. So they're the person that if I'm having issues with how to communicate with someone, they like can help walk me through it and teach me like how to be better using nonviolent communication or just like how to like work through projects and things like that. Because something, something that happens in like a cooperative setting, if you're going to have like eight or nine people working a business together, you or more, we can, it can be an infinite number. You need to be able to handle conflicts, like interpersonal conflict right away. Um, yeah. And you can't be like conflict averse. So like, if I'm having like, an issue with another worker owner, like I need to be able to handle that right away. And I can't just sit on it because it's going to hurt the overall ecological, like, the overall health of our business. So it's really taught me, like, it's really fascinating. Sometimes we joke that we spend more time managing people and like dealing with like communication stuff than actually doing like the rest of the work. And it, it I a hundred percent, it is like, it can be very, very draining because sometimes you do get derailed from your work like let's say like designing landscapes or whatever but then you start to realize like like this is just as important as the work like how how we communicate with people within our business or how we treat people within our business is like super important to us you know making sure like our the people who work labor every day are like get breaks 
whenever they need them. We have implemented like special like reflex uh god stretching programs that are that are mandatory to do every morning and every time after lunch um so they're curated by like a personal trainer to like help with like general wear and tear that happens to your body in landscaping you know we try to make sure that people don't work more than like seven to eight hours a day labor on site and if we do we're very clear communication about like days going longer the way we even like view labor and how we like treat laborers, especially in horticulture and like landscaping, which is usually from being in the industry for like over 15 years and just seeing, especially in the United States, it's a lot more apparent, but like how poorly people are treated who work labor jobs. It's really important to us that we like break that mold and we try to like give people who do work that is typically not valued, show that we value them. And we do our best from that to trying to pay living wages, which is a really like, kind of like a, what does that even mean subject? Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things to put into consideration when doing this. And it's not just, I'm starting a plant business. It's like, there's a lot of moving parts and I'm really thankful for like everyone that's involved in it. They have a really good, everyone seems to know, fill in their niche. And it seems to just kind of, if we follow the, the process, it kind of just works out, which is it's, it's, fascinating to me that it does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, just listening, just listening to you talk about the challenges of that industry as somebody who, when I was 20 worked in landscaping and I was just remembering like some of the, the houses where it was like, they wanted to do crushed stone in the backyard and it's on a giant grade and it's like, all right, here's a wheelbarrow, go at it for 10 hours. And you're just like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> and it's if you've never been on that side of things, it there are things that you would be like, they wouldn't ask you to do that for that long. No, for yeah. that much money. Yeah, for that much money. Yeah, so it is awesome to hear that you guys are able to try to be thoughtful about those decisions. Yeah. So I, I do want to ask though about the native plants because obviously, yeah. like this is what I I care about podcast i mean i i also care about like ethical work standards yeah. i guess but <laughs> um yeah you know how do you get people to care about native plants i mean i know it's portland so you know that you've got a couple steps ahead of other places yeah but what is it that gets people to say yeah i'm gonna do that instead great question uh one we do have the portland thing going for us we have i think it's a pretty like the people here tend to be a little bit more self-aware of like the impact and like trying to, you know, change their impact. So I think that works for us. It's really tough to be honest. We have social media. We try our best, like things like Instagram to get people like, you know, laughing at content and like then making it like making it educational, things like that. We offer like free native plant tours at our nursery I think we just scheduled a bunch. I don't I don't know the the dates offhand, but they're they're coming up. And we try to offer them once or twice a month where like our nursery lead Grace will just walk people through all the native plants in the nursery and really talk to them. When I think when we're out doing consultations with clients, anyone who's in a consultation position, we just like speak enthusiastically about them and like really like get excited about it and I I I genuinely think that 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 helps people kind of see the other world. So you're a hype man is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm a native plant hype man. That's exactly kind of what <laughs> I think. When I wake up every morning, I, I hype up the homies and 
yeah. give them a little dab of water. <laughs> yeah, just go. Well, they're native plants. They don't really need that much water. So I just say I just say kind words to them because, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to water. I don't want to water the some of the native plants in the summertime. They don't need that. Yeah, I just I just kind of give them my good words and say I'm looking out for you and I'll be your hype man. So yeah, I think I think it's it's like that. And then I think people like genuinely like when you go by our storefront, like we have like giant murals and like things, native plants. We like, we very obviously bleed these things. So I think, I think it just kind of like comes out in our work. I don't, I can't think of like any like specific targeted efforts that maybe we've done. And I'm sure, I'm sure there, there is, but I think we just try to be as educational as possible. There's a lot of like learning lessons for any, like for any time there's an appropriate place for a native plant in any situation in any landscape so a lot of it is just directing the conversation a lot of it is my my favorite thing is like learning a native plant replacement for every like conventional horticulture plant like oh i like boxwoods it's like well let's try an evergreen huckleberry there or oh i want this um oh gosh put yourself on the spot yeah yeah and i'm like well have you tried a big leaf or native big leaf rhododendron you know like it's endemic to the 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 the, the oh, i don't even know it's, i see them on mount hood all the time but or it's like you know oh you want this shade tree like let's try something else like just trying to like shift the, the paradigm or yeah. like just just bring it always back to like native plants when we're talking about things or like people are like oh i want these daffodils it's like well have you tried some native bulbs or like just reminding people that they're they're there yeah, unpacking why they want the non-native and then finding the native that does the same thing. Yeah, and there's there's literally a substitution for everything. The more you learn about native plants, the easier it kind of becomes to like figure out. And the more you learn about like installing landscapes and like talking to clients and things like that, you you figure out how much easier like you figure out what the client what their goals are and then you you figure out how to like introduce them to like how you can do it your way, I guess. Just, you know, a little bit of psychological warfare. That's all. Yeah. I, I go into every consultation going to bat for yeah, native and I will. Native I will, hype man. Yeah. I will, I will make you. Yeah. I was going to say, I'll gaslight you into thinking you need anything but native plants, but I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's a war. Come on. It is the a war, war on hey, invasives. Hey, you know what? And the way, the way like, uh, ecological collapse and all the things are going i think there's no dirty way to fight for native plants right now so you know i think i think whatever I, whatever i got to do to get the job done right i want to ask about your instagram a little bit because i did yeah. see you're posting some really cool projects we had talked before and you're like i've never thought of calling uh, what we're doing a pocket forest yeah so it is one thing i've seen you guys doing like some really dense large plantings and that's really awesome because a there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence at this point of or or like a academic research or anything that people can point to as examples of doing that in the United States where it's been like successful it's just hmm. the that pra that practice comes from Japan and it's stayed very prominent in most of the the east but it really it's it's made its way to some of England, but it really hasn't made its way into the United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if that was the first one. I think you posted like a couple months ago, and if you've been doing it for a little while, if there's any kind of lessons you've learned from the from uh, repeated practices. Yeah, I guess like like I said, the the concept of a pocket forest is kind of like 
new to me and something I learned from listening to your podcast. I think what the, our goal is whenever we're like trying to plant landscapes or like woodland gardens is like we plant things so densely because it outcompetes invasives and it just outcompetes weeds. So our goal is to create these like low maintenance landscapes. I, I think maybe our approach or why we do it is like maybe for a little bit different reasonings, but it like in- inherently creates the same goal. Yeah. And in a lot of our teaching and a lot of like the ways we we've been taught we're always designing in like layers, you know, from canopy, sub canopy, shrub, perennial ground cover, root fungal layer. So we're thinking about all of these layers when designing gardens. And I think it just kind of ends up creating a, a forest essentially. You've had good luck with them nor any I, like I have. surprises I, I, that, you know. I mean, invasive plants are always going to be invasive plants. Like uh, I don't know where you're at, but like, you know, Himalayan blackberry and ivy are always going to be prominent um, and they're really difficult to get rid of. Things like morning glory, really tough. I can't say that it's like a, it's a silver bullet, but what I have noticed is that your water needs to go way down. Your maintenance needs to go way down. You do create more habitat. And from what I can tell, they're functioning fine um, in the, you know, the ones that I've got to go back and revisit the older forest gardens that I've worked in and all that stuff. They seem, they seem to be having all their needs met. So I think, I think we're there, we're creating some sort of ecosystem behind it, whether or not it's functioning like a fully healthy forest or whatever, you know, like that it's, it's hard to say, but from time will tell. Yeah. And time will tell. And, but from my, from my point of view, I genuinely think that they're performing just fine. And I think, you know, if I go back and visit a planting five, six years later, that maybe got neglected, but that's still thriving. I think, I think that's a good sign that, that we're doing the right, that, that we've put things, the right things in motion, but also it's just like native plants, just, they they just want to grow, you know? So like we're, all we're doing is like setting up like these minor conditions and following these, like minute like spacing like protocols and kind of things like it's in just like with the idea that things are dense and lush and the plants just kind of take care of themselves we just guide them along you know so yeah i can't think i guess uh, things that like i mean i don't want to sell it like it's like oh it's always good because like sometimes there is like issues with things and i think the biggest issue and i guess it depends on the goals of your site if you're doing a native native landscape you definitely have the ability to plant a little bit more densely than say if we wanted to do um i keep doing quotations like a food forest like a, a, a permaculture food forest which could be looked at as maybe like a, a form of pocket forest let's say maybe not the same but if you're if you're looking for food harvest and stuff like that you just have to be really mindful about like airflow in especially in our climate because we have really wet winters and there's like a lot of moisture in the air yeah. fungal disease can really spread if things are too densely and a lot of the things a lot of the problems i've seen with say like food forest installations or things that are more orientated to growing food and like conventional food plants like conventional fruit trees density usually becomes the issue there because things there's just no airflow and then fungal diseases take over bacterial diseases take over the density can become a problem, but in like native plants, like they grow in thickets all the time. They're, they're okay to be dense. And if your goal is habitat, it's, it's going to, it's going to create habitat. That's awesome. I'm, I'm super pumped to see how those develop in the next couple of years. Hopefully you guys will keep posting about them on Instagram. Yeah, I, we, we will for sure. It's, it's really tough. Cause a lot of, like a, a lot of our work, we've been installing so many projects 
but everything is just so young still. So we don't have like a lot of like good beauty shots. And I need, I need to go back to Canada and like get photos of like some of the landscapes that I installed, you know, seven or eight years ago to kind of like give more of a snapshot of that because they're, they're, they're out there. Just as a thought too, I, I just recalled, there's a lot of like, just as a testament to like this type of like work in Canada. And I think around in the Pacific Northwest too, there's old um, indigenous village sites that actually have like old, what we would call a food forest, but plantings like intentional plantings around their communities that still are standing up and they're a couple hundred years old. So I think if anything, there's a lot of like, people were doing it before, you know, like these mm. intentional plantings of things like that. So I think there's, if we're looking to like history, there's a little bit of evidence that, that they'll work out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Matt, so for folks that do want to see your tiny forest um, or go check out what you guys are doing, or maybe they live in Portland and now they want to come buy some plants, where can they mm-hmm. find you guys? You can find us at, three, if you're in Portland, come, the shop is a 3454 Southeast Powell Boulevard, Portland, Oregon, uh, in the, in Southeast Portland. If you want to just get a hold of us, www.symbiop.com is kind of like where you can kind of see our garden shop offerings as well as book us for landscaping if you need need to. If you like Instagram and that's kind of your world, we're on Instagram and Facebook. So we're both there. Instagram is symbio- at Symbiop Garden Shop. That's where you're going to find a lot of like curated content, you know, a lot of memes. Our Instagram person, Ren, they do a very good job at creating just funny content <laughs> that gives us all a kick and it seems to be taken very well, as well as lots of great information um, and lots of points to think about. And then our landscaping Instagram is uh, Symbiop Landscaping. So that's probably the best way to get a hold of us. Awesome. Matt, this has been uh, really interesting and i um, looking forward to seeing you guys grow, yeah. literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Th- uh, thanks, Andy. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy Instagram. One Instagram conversation turned into a, a, a little bit of a longer one. So thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah.